Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. If we care about heart disease, if we care about Alzheimer's, insulin resistance, this is, obviously there, there's multiple facets to it, but from my perspective, the target organ is skeletal muscle. You can't go exercise your liver, last time I checked. I mean, Gabby, you might be able to exercise your liver, but the rest of us normal people, we can't go out and exercise our liver, right? Muscle is the organ of longevity and understanding that muscle and training skeletal muscle and inputting hard physical activity is really a cornerstone for health and wellness. And I think that we've all heard that, but I'm not talking about it as it relates to losing weight. I'm not talking about, I mean, all of these things are are critical, but where the real magic of muscle is, is understanding that it really is the focal point and it is now optional whether we use it or not. Knowledge, or if you have information, then you have a a responsibility to share it. And listen, I feel so passionate about this because I'm seeing what's happening. And I'm seeing that people are really trying to do the right thing. And we have industry and bias and narrative, which is pulling people off the path. The reality is, if you have ever spent time in a nursing home or you have seen people break a hip and not walk, or if you've seen people waste away, then you have a responsibility to fight for the people in the middle. You know, it's not gonna get easier. And if we continue to push this confusion and these narratives, then that, that window of youth closes and there's gonna be a lot of regret that happens and we're not gonna be able to fix that. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And Dr. Lyon has created the muscle-centric medicine idea, which is she's sort of saying, hey, we should be treating the skeletal muscle system like another important organ. And she's able to really break down information about the importance of certain amino acids in our diet. I think You know, a lot of times when we get into the discussion of like, oh, vegetarian and vegan and people eating high quality protein, it's really about, well, what's in the protein that we need? So I'm all for everybody doing it the way that is best for them and supports them wherever, you know, you're at, whether it's a a belief or a combination of, hey, I just feel better this way. But Dr. Lyon is very clear about us dosing our protein, sort of the healthiest ways to do that. And I know it's confusing. I know it's like, okay, you'll hear one thing over here and another thing there. And and for me, it's just about talking with people that spend a lot of time in these spaces and have opinions that if they ring true or you want to experiment, the hope is, is that it can support your health. She was certified in family medicine. She completed her research clinical fellowship in nutrition science and geriatrics. So this is a smart powerhouse woman and sometimes the conversation got choppy. We had babies crying and, you know, just technical issues. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, Gabrielle Lyon, here we go. It's a perfect last name. Um, Let's just dive right in to you know, muscle centric medicine, because 
I'll set the table and then I'll, I just want to get in because you're you're like the most fun type of person to talk to because there's so much to learn. But then I also have to like try to reel it in because there's so much that we could talk about. Yeah. So I want to go. I want to go there because you had an experience where, uh, and I'll let you dive into where you had your epiphany. You you uh, you have an osteopathic. Um, background and geriatric. You did a lot of geriatric care. So you're, you're coming from a lot of different backgrounds, but you were studying, a, I believe you said a mother of three and yes. it, it kind of dawned on you about the connection of even, you know, muscle amount, muscle health, weight, and the brain and such. So maybe we could, we can start there and dive deep into the importance of, you know, skeletal muscle period. I would love to. And I have to say that I believe in life we are prepped for certain things, right? Depending on our level of training, depending on the influences that we've had in our life. And I came about medicine very reluctantly. I had originally thought I was going to go into nutritional sciences first and foremost, as, as I kind of lay out this story. And then I realized that I really wanted to be able to do something and have a real impact. Not that nutrition alone isn't, but to really be able to treat patients. And I was fortunate enough to do my undergraduate in um, University of Illinois. So in Champaign-Urbana, brutal. Don't recommend, no offense to anyone who lives there, but the winters are really cold. There's not much to do. And I fell under the mentorship of someone named Dr. Donald Lehman. And he, to this day, is one of the world-leading protein experts. And he was doing some of the very early studies, very much in line with what I talk about, because he has mentored me and continues to mentor me for the last 20 years, which is a really long time. And I went into medicine with a, a foundation of thinking about muscle first, really thinking about nutritional sciences and muscle. As I think happens along the way, we lose kind of our primary training in a way it goes to the wayside, that becomes our foundation. And then we venture into the mundane of learning medicine and and doing all those things. So then I obviously went through medical school, which I did traditional medical school, DO, MD, it's it's the same. Did um, two years of psychiatry training, believe it or not at University of Louisville, yes, and then three years of family medicine. And then I went back and did a postdoc in nutritional sciences, obesity medicine, and geriatrics. And this, this is where everything came together for me. And and I hope for your listener, I had seen five years of a broken system. And that was through residency, through training. It's very high volume. And you see a broken system. Then you move into a fellowship, which is what I did. And an academic fellowship. And and what that means is we're really looking for answers and we're thinking about questions and executing on questions and and trying to solve for problems that then create protocols for other individuals. And I remember imaging this woman's brain and it had been a really, a really early morning and it was a late evening. And we did some fMRI studies of her brain and her brain looked like an Alzheimer's brain. And it was at that moment where I felt personally responsible. I felt that the the medical system had failed her. I felt that I had done nothing to contribute to 
a way in which this could have been prevented. And I realized after getting to know her and speaking to her and seeing her and doing biopsies on her that she had just done the best she could. And it wasn't that she had a lack of effort. It was that there was lack of knowledge and that we had been focusing on the wrong tissue, which still to this day, all we do is talk about adipose tissue when in reality, she didn't have an adipose problem. She had a muscle problem. Mm. And had we solved for that, she probably wouldn't be in this predicament that within the next 10, 15 years, she probably was going to start to have memory issues. And of course, being a trained geriatrician, we know what that looks like. We've all had older parents. We've all known someone. And that, that really changed it for me. Yeah, I feel like Alzheimer's or dementia, besides cancer, it's like that is everyone's greatest. Yes. I think fear. I, I'm not sure. I, I but would it's agree like, with you. So, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. And I, it's interesting where, so this is what I hear a lot. And I know you hear this more than I do. It's, it's so hard. It's so confusing out there. Cause I'm from my point of view, I'm like, Hey, listen, all the information's out there, everybody. Like we all know what it is over and over and over. Um, Mm -hmm. I would like to start at that point. Well, first of all, I'm going to establish this because you're going to say it again, that you're, you're saying, Hey, listen, we need to treat skeletal muscle like an organ that we ignore it. And that you, you say, Hey, listen, if you're interested in, you know, Alzheimer's or diabetes or all these things, we need to be interested in muscle. It is critical. It is the pinnacle. It is not the periphery. And you are absolutely right. If we care about heart disease, if we care about Alzheimer's, insulin resistance, this is obviously there, there's multiple facets to it. But from my perspective, the target organ is skeletal muscle. You can't go exercise your liver last time I checked. I mean, Gabby, you might be able to exercise your liver, but the rest of us normal people, we can't go out and exercise our liver, right? Dr. But Lyons, you can. <laughs> listen, the thing for me though is like when you say this, I can see, I can hear somebody on their side going, wait a second. They're telling me to watch sugar. They're telling me to try to exercise. They're telling me to get to bed early. And now this. So I, for me, when I hear this, I get excited because I'm like, hey, this is another way to simplify and get another tool, another, yeah. you know. So let's talk about what it means to pay attention to muscle. Because, for example, you have patients that come to you. I see you. I can tell you have a physical practice. You know, you're married to a very, you have a, your husband is, was a Navy SEAL, is a Navy SEAL. There's a very, there's a physical mm-hmm. language. Yeah, for sure. So when people hear the word muscle, they think, bang iron. So maybe we could start there when you talk about muscle and how we serve that organ in the way that you mean. Yeah. I think, I think you bring up a a good point and and I want to put this on the table that physical activity now is optional. It never used to be optional. When we talk about muscle and it's like we were saying, people think of muscle, they immediately, they get gym rat and you're saying, Hey, listen, we used to have a life where that was just built in. Right. And, and I think that that's actually the biggest failure in the medical system right now is that we have this dichotomy between physicality, right? Fitness. And we think about fitness as looking good in a bikini or I don't know, going for a run and being strong. And then we have the medical side, but where true movement, no pun intended, is actually going to come in is if we interface the two. Muscle is the organ of longevity and understanding that muscle and training skeletal muscle and 
inputting hard physical activity is really a, a cornerstone for health and wellness. And I think that we've all heard that, but I'm not talking about it as it relates to losing weight. I'm not talking about, I mean, all of these things are, are critical. But where the real magic of muscle is, is understanding that it really is the focal point and it is now optional whether we use it or not. Mm. And it's interesting because we have this concept that people can be healthy and sedentary, you know, oh, well, not overweight, you're healthy, you know, but you're sedentary. I would say that's absolutely not the, the case. Mm. The reality is skeletal muscle is an endocrine organ. That means when you contract it, it does a number of things. It interfaces with the immune system, which we all care about right now. It interfaces, and when I say the immune system, you know, if you have low levels of inflammation, skeletal muscle actually interfaces and helps regulate your immune system. In essence, skeletal muscle is an immune regulatory organ. Okay, number one, which is so cool. But we never, two, we never hear this. You're right. And this is the problem. What you hear is train, train for athletic performance, mm -hmm. train because, you know, you want to get better at the row or the jump or, or whatever. And then there's the medical side and the medical side is limited to eat right and exercise. And what I'm saying is, okay, eat right and exercise. What does that mean? And also we have to leverage skeletal muscle as the endocrine organ that it is as the immune interface that it is, as the metabolic sink, which I think is pretty common knowledge, but as it relates to metabolic sink, we have to think about the diseases that you mentioned earlier, like Alzheimer's, like obesity, cardiovascular disease. These are diseases in which skeletal muscle plays a central role, yet it's never tackled first. It's always you know, after obesity is, in my opinion, symptomology of impaired muscle. Insulin resistance is symptomology of, of impaired muscle. And obviously these things are not black and white and there's a multitude of factors, but from my perspective, this is completely missed. And I'm sure the listener would agree. So if let's, let's go a little bit Let's say if we have a younger person, like you can get away with some weird stuff when you're young because of your hormones and some other stuff. Totally. So if let's say you've got someone in their 20s, is it okay, hey, making sure you're getting uh, enough, just a good diet and enough protein. And I want to break that down a little bit more in, in a moment yeah. um, and what that means, because it, it means something very different to you than what I think a lot of people hear and, and, yeah. and exercise. So in a perfect world, if you had a patient in front of you, sort of between their 20s and 30s, you'd say, what type of training is going yeah. to really serve you? And let's keep it generic. If they're an athlete, maybe totally. they'll do a little more of this or that. And when I say athlete, I mean, a, there's plenty, you're an athlete. I mean, because you're a doctor, I, you know, you have a physical practice, you're, you probably have things yeah. that you enjoy doing more than others. So when I say athlete, yeah. I don't mean somebody who puts on right. a jerk and gets paid for it. And I'm also married to a Navy SEAL who's doing a bazillion push-ups that I have to keep up, or push-ups and pull-ups I have to keep up with. So yes. A pull-up is, is so hard. Um, <laughs> is, right. is when this person comes in front of you, you, you say to them, Hey, on just the movement side, we'll get into the protein because yeah. that needs some real attention. Right. What's, what's your kind of loose umbrella? Yeah, I, I would say the first thing is this, you are in prime muscle building 
time. You are in a prime muscle building time. And listen, we can all agree that muscle takes time to mature, right? An 18-year-old isn't going to be as well-developed as they are after they've spent a decade training. Yeah. But <laughs> just ask a 45-year-old guy. They'll tell you it's old muscle, layers and layers. A hundred, a hundred percent. But the reality is those really fit, jacked, 45-year-old men, they didn't start at 40. They started in their 20s and 30s training, building. You know, we know when individuals are younger, satellite cells, muscle tissue is very uh, malleable. And, you know, it makes sense that the more well-trained you are from a younger age, the better your trajectory of aging. And also you prime your body. You prime your body from youth to be able to execute, to have healthy skeletal muscle. And what I say is that training early on is critical. You know, interesting, I've always trained. I've always weight trained. Training early on sets the foundation. And it's not just for a year. It's not just in your 20s, but really, again, as we move to the 20s, 30s, these decades of training are what makes the magic. So when we talk about, you know, in 20s, 30s and beyond, you know, forever, let's say training and training muscle, there's different kinds of muscle. And, Mm -hmm. and I think for a lot of people, it's one way you said, Hey, I grew up, I always lifted. It's just a natural language that you speak. I think a lot of people don't even know where to start. Like, what does that mean? Do I go in and just lift heavy, you know, oh, do biceps, I do squats. So how do we direct somebody like, hey, this is what it means to build muscle. And these are the different kinds of muscle. So I think that number one, actually working with a fitness professional, I, I would say individuals should absolutely invest in that. I will also say that when you're young, there's a few things to think about. Number one, everything is much more forgiving. You're much less likely to get injured. The, your joints, your hormones, everything is more optimized when you're young. When I think about building muscle and when I think about, and and I hesitate to say uh, systems, but I think hypertrophy training is not difficult and beneficial for everybody. Hypertrophy hypertrophy training is is just exactly what it sounds like, putting on more muscle mass. Mm -hmm. Um, As it relates to mitochondria training or cardio respiratory training, I think that, you know, I think that there's always a, a place for that. And it's interesting because right now it's almost as if we're seeing a shift opposite where people are saying, ah, don't do cardio, just train. And, you know, uh, I think that that's probably also not a great idea. I also believe that everybody has a certain aptitude. They, they, um, like, and are good at different things. I I do think optimizing for that skill set, whatever it is, whether it's functional movement or for you, you know, you're probably very explosive. I think optimizing for those things and, and doing what you're good at is also very valuable. But from my perspective, I will say that hypertrophy training, because it is easy, because individuals can do it. And again, I care about not just muscle mass for muscle mass's sake, but I care about it from the perspective of disease prevention. So that's where I would leave that. And of course, cardiovascular training, yes. But the reality is you can pretty much always do cardiovascular training. And does the capacity diminish over time? Yeah. But again, you know, the reality is it's much more difficult to put on muscle later on in life. Okay, so to that point, 
someone might be listening going, listen, in my 20s and 30s, I was on the, you know, hedonic treadmill working my ass off trying to get it going and, you know, do my career. And I either didn't pick up the baton or I dropped it for a long time. Yeah. You know, when someone's doing that, do you think, and and again, once we sort of reinforce some of the nutritional aspects of this in this conversation, that there's still always an opportunity for people or how about there's so many women that were never encouraged to be physical, to sweat. They say things like, I don't want to be too big, all this stuff. Is it, it's still, they still can get on it. Of course. Of course. Right. There is always room for improvement. And, you know, I would say, like you pointed out that I have a a practice where I see patients. I have a, a concierge medical practice. And the one thing that all those patients have in common, every single one of them, is they all know where their weaknesses lie. And that is different for different people. But let's say uh, an example would be a weakness, they're detrained. You know, typically, you know, my patient population isn't, isn't really detrained. But if, for example, that was their experience, they would leverage that. They would understand that that can be changed and they can actually move forward in a positive manner. You can always, always get stronger. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like it does feel uphill to people, but we always just try to say, Hey, listen, there's only one first day. And I would say those people more than even some of the kind of sharp end of the stick people that you work with, because you do work in performance with military and Navy SEALs, they actually would benefit by getting a guide, get a trainer, even if it's just a month, you know, learn some of the basics and then go from there. So that group actually even more, maybe we could, you could just share though, when you are dealing with a high performance, you know, person, because again, these people are already very physical. In what ways are you tweaking and helping them through this same concept? Well, one of the things, it really depends on the individual, but individuals are very predictable. And I think what makes a good physician is not just the diagnosis of illness, but it's actually being able to understand the archetype of the individual. And over a period of years, you begin to see the patterns of the individual, not just a pattern of disease, but the pattern of the individual sitting in front of you. And high performance individuals are also very driven in the way that they are disconnected from overstimulation, pushing themselves beyond any kind of feasible limit, ultimately protecting them from themselves is really important. And I would say that protecting them from themselves, also augmenting any kinds of, you know, issues that maybe if there was a head trauma, right, and hormones are now low, there's all kinds of things that you want to balance, but ultimately really being able to protect people from themselves and see a trajectory of where someone is going and create and put a positive influence in that prior to kind of the wheels falling off. Right. Like they're just going to keep training at that level. Let's say you have somebody with a, with some kind of concussion or head trauma, what sort of protocol is part of them protecting themselves? Cause that I think is more common than we realize, you know, it takes somebody having a mountain biking accident. And it's like, for this period of time, you need to actually be doing this. What, what sort of things do you do? Well, early intervention, as soon as possible. And there's hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is very helpful and available. Also, one of the things that people don't realize is the importance of sleep. 
while they may realize the importance of sleep, they don't realize that oftentimes with head trauma, people develop sleep apnea. And being tested at home for sleep apnea is super simple, whether it's just a mouth guard to reposition or, you know, a lot of the guys are like, I'm not wearing the, the CPAP machine. But really, if they need it, the, the time in which the brain cleans itself, the glial cells uh, can get rid of waste is when we sleep. And we know that individuals who don't sleep are at increased risk for Alzheimer's. Another protocol is obviously fish oil is very important. And then subsequent, if they've got, because of head trauma, if they have hormonal imbalances, that's really important to treat. Those kinds of things are very important to treat. And can people have hormonal imbalances from a head trauma? Because then yeah. things are, the system yeah. just goes awry. Absolutely. Hypothalamus and, and yes, absolutely. In fact, they do. They typically can and do oftentimes. And, and I think that it's really important for people to realize that no matter what your belief system is, there's no shame in treating something that is not optimized or that an individual needs. You know, a lot of people feel as if they're going to just muscle through it and, you know, perhaps their testosterone is tanked out or a woman's progesterone or estrogen is totally low or their testosterone. I, I think that when we are in the space of really taking care of people and individuals are in the space of taking care of themselves, there's nothing wrong with really addressing those things. I always find it, I mean, I get, I get guilty of this. I, I hopefully you're smarter than, than me on this, but sometimes I really, I'm happy to encourage everybody else to go get their blood work done or take a test or get their MRI or whatever's going on. And I will drag my feet and I've got stuff to do. And also secretly between us, I don't want to know. Yeah. You know, so it's like, predictable, right? So I know. that's when you partner up with a physician who no. knows exactly that you're going to do that. And then they send someone to your house. Yeah, I know. I, I let my husband's like, did you, you know, he's on me. Do you, I want to talk about just really quickly on this part. Uh, I don't want to say an underserved group, but a, sur a group that really gets their ass kicked in this area is women moving into premenopause, menopause, and perimenopause. They think that their sentence is to put that weight on around their belly, and that's just the way it is. And it, I, 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 I know so many people it crashes down on them like a wave. How? What? What do we? Okay, so yes, let's get your blood work done. Let's check your levels. Some of that baseline stuff. What are the things that maybe you're sharing with them that they're not hearing from some of their typical yeah. doctors? And well, if you want to use this to slide into like, hey you need to eat more protein. I'm fine. Like wherever you want to go with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I there, just, there's, really, there's a, a few things that happen around perimenopause. Menopause is number one, people stop moving as much and it's a decrease in spontaneous activity. When estrogen decreases, they just, you know, like if you see me, I'm, I'm like this all the time, right? But oh, yeah. perimenopause, <laughs> I bet you can appreciate that. Perimenopause, <laughs> oh my God. And a man child, like, come on. Anyway. Yes. Um, so they, their spontaneous activity decreases, uh, mm -hmm. where perhaps they're uh, more sedentary than they would be. And the other thing that happens is, is individuals, so they're more sedentary, they're consuming the same amount of calories or even more for whatever reason. And I just say this anecdotally, there's an increase in alcohol consumption oftentimes, whether it's wine or perhaps, <laughs> Gabby, perhaps no, women drink. are- I don't drink. <laughs> Are I, not, just, um, I started thinking, I'm like, either the kids are teenagers, they've been in a very long relationship, yeah. um, or the kids are finally out of the house, they're bored. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's sometimes you get to that place in your life. You're like, oh, wait, was this it? Is this what yeah. we did? Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I don't drink alcohol, but I just, all those things came to my mind, of course, you know. Yeah. Like, anyway. So, so women oftentimes will, you know, do, whether women or men, but tend to do that. And all, and, and what else is really important is as hormones decline during this time, so does skeletal muscle mass. And skeletal muscle as the metabolic sink, as our metabolic regulator, we see an increase in insulin resistance, elevated levels of glucose. There's all kinds of metabolic issues that can happen as skeletal muscle decreases. It's really at this time where I recommend high-intensity training, high-intensity interval training. I think that that kind of intense stimulus is more potent than anything. You know, people always ask me, what's more important, diet or exercise? And the reality is both is important, but training, physical training is what really moves that metabolic needle for people. Mm-hmm. Got to train. And then, you know, carbohydrate reduction, because if, you know, and again, it's about calories, but really managing carbohydrates, understanding that carbohydrates are important in a meal threshold amount. It's not uh, which means that it's not just a 24-hour uh, carbohydrate intake that's important, but from my perspective, is a meal for, is a meal threshold. How many carbohydrates are you having at one meal? Because uh, you do want to mitigate insulin, an insulin response, and then of course dietary protein. Right. So let's let's you know I I found it fascinating when I I was real I was so happy I was going to you know, get to visit with you and, um, Terry Walsh introduced us and, you know, it, it just, I'm like, why is protein consumption become like a thing? Like it's controversial. And, um, it's like, maybe we need sort of a, 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 you know, a sort of a little bit punk rock, you know, beautiful woman to say, Hey, everybody, we need to, you know, not be afraid to eat protein. And you were talking about, I think this is really important because there's a lot of, you know, always, it's packaged, it's trended. There's always stories around these things. It's like, okay, fat's bad. Okay. Now protein's bad. You know, when I was, when I was younger, believe me, we carbo loaded before, you know, give me a bagel and a bowl of pasta because you have to carbo load. So we've heard, you know, I've heard it all is, and you talked about a study, I believe you said it was a Stu Phillips about the function, right. Of protein, um, and, and the kidney. So Let's let's talk about your belief about not only how much protein we need to eat, probably a lot more protein than we are eating. And as we get older, we need to increase that. Yeah. I, I love what you said that we've argued about carbohydrates, which we've gotten wrong. We tried the food guide pyramid. That was a complete disaster, right? You saw it. We, they recommended, okay, so let's you know, go more grain-based. And, you know, from my perspective, that's a a plant-based kind of message. And that's exactly what we did. And everybody got, you know, became overweight and we've had a whole slew of problems since that time. And then saturated fat and cholesterol, we've pretty much argued about that since, gosh, before the seventies. And, you know, the dietary guidelines finally came out in the eighties. And what's so interesting is from the eighties, to the to 2010, nobody even really addressed protein. Protein wasn't the primary. So within that 30 years, you mean to tell me that there was no scientific advancement in dietary protein? And, and I say this because I just want to point out that protein has been largely ignored. 
when it comes to changing the recommendations, it's still 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is the recommended dietary allowance is the minimum to prevent deficiencies based on something called a nitrogen balance study. Last time I checked, we've never used nitrogen balance as a, a health endpoint in the clinic ever, right? Like nobody has ever, you know, and in the reality is it sounds there was, <laughs> right. But isn't, is it insanity? Is it absolute insanity that we haven't changed these recommendations and that, you know, you know, and I was thinking, you know, I'm writing a book right now and I was going back through the history of where the divide happened. You know, I think if we don't understand the history, we're going to repeat it. And if we don't understand the history, then, you know, we're going to be naive to the cyclical nature of messaging which is really fascinating in nutrition is that it's never just about nutrition. It's never just about the science. Nutrition is emotional. Nutrition is cultural. It, it, it has all these other aspects to it other than the, just the biology of, of what we're dealing with. You know, and, and back to the, the dietary protein part is that, so these guidelines came out in the 80s and then no one really changed or, or so much addressed protein because everyone's focused on saturated fat, carbohydrates. And then 2010, maybe they're going to start to address it. And the reality is, is the recommendations that we have are, are just the minimum amount to prevent deficiencies. And I, I want to point something else out. When you're sick, do you hesitate to take more vitamin C? Never. What? You don't? But the RDA for vitamin C is like 60 milligrams. Yeah. But if you were sick, you wouldn't think oh, I'm going to eat more protein. My muscles need it. I'm highly catabolic. I have to regenerate my gut lining or there's all these other stressors that are really important. But nobody, nobody would look at the RDA for, for um, vitamin C and say that's the maximum. Yet society looks at protein recommendations at 0.8 grams per kilogram as the maximum. We totally missed the mark. So if someone's listening and they want to kind of recalibrate based on body weight, yeah. from what you've been seeing, what would you recommend? Well, I think that understanding your 24-hour protein need as this idea of a protein hierarchy is very valuable. And when I think about protein, I think about, and this is on the higher end, one gram per pound ideal body weight, ideal body weight. I'm 110 pounds. I eat 110 grams of protein, maybe 120 grams of protein. You're 110 pounds? I'm five foot one. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. Right now, Tiny. Right, right now. No, you're compact. We call that compact. Yes, yes. And when you work, and when you work with men and if they are more compact, you say that they're compact. You don't say that they're short, by the way. That's another. Oh, you don't? No wonder why I've offended everybody. Now no, I know. Thank you. Yeah, you have to say you're compact. If I'm six three. I weigh 180 pounds. I'm not going around like, well, because you're short. Guys are like, thanks a lot. You got to say you're compact. It you sounds good. Skin. Like, get it together. It's okay. You you're organized. I say, because your oh, body's okay. I like organized. That. I like that. So, so one, one gram, gram per ideal. But so what, let's say I was 200 pounds right now. And my ideal weight is probably less than 180. It's probably like really 175, let's say. So you'd say, really hey, back it down 175. Yeah, I would also say yes. I think that that would work. I think I would have no problem okay. saying that. And and I think yeah. the other 
important component of that. And listen, that is on the high end. And the reason it is on the high end is, is number one, we have to understand that when we eat for muscles need, when we eat those essential amino acids, when we hit the need for muscle, everything else falls into place. Everything else falls into place, you know? And, um, well, let's talk about that because really if you dig down, which you will, about the meat, it's about the amino acids for you. It's yes, not about yes. like, hey, meat. About meat. right. So my, let's. Are you kidding let me? me? I was done talking about protein if I could, but I cannot because I feel that if you have knowledge or if you have information, then you have a, a responsibility to share it. And listen, I feel so passionate about this because I'm seeing what's happening and I'm seeing that people are really trying to do the right thing. And we have industry and bias and narrative, which is pulling people off the path. The reality is, if you have ever spent time in a nursing home or you have seen people break a hip and not walk, or if you've seen people waste away, then you have a responsibility for fight to fight for the people in the middle. You know, it's not going to get easier. And if we continue to push this confusion and these narratives, then that that window of youth closes and there's going to be a lot of regret that happens and we're not gonna be able to fix that you know yeah and it feels like people it's it it does that's one thing i always wanted to talk about for this show which is i don't think good health or feeling good or vitality should be an exclusive proposition i agree you know it should be how do we disseminate this in a way that people can go oh i know how to add this so into my everyday life so you know, you talk about increasing your protein intake because maybe you can explain just about how some of your sensors in your body, they, you know, their ability to, uh, you know, sense things, whatever, leucine, I think it was, they diminish. So you actually need to- You're so well prepared for this interview. Oh, well, no, listen, if I have time with someone like you, I want to maximize it, but also I want to understand it for myself. And so I'm just trying to, because people- I want, I think when people understand why's behind things, it's so much easier to stay consistent with it instead of, well, she said I should have more protein. Well, yes. And because it's the aminos and you should have more as you get older because certain things are not doing their job as easily. That's right. That is a very elegant way of explaining what we call something that something that is called anabolic resistance. And this is really the efficiency of skeletal muscle as it relates to protein sensing and utilization. And I will say though, and I don't wanna throw anybody off, but when an individual is well-trained, for example, like yourself and continues to be well-trained, there's probably a lot more flexibility in that. I'm just saying. But for the normal human being that is not a professional athlete, which is you know, everybody else, the, the muscle tissue changes, unfortunately, which, you know, like all things change, skin changes, uh, nearly everything changes. Tell me about it. it But when it relates, you look great for 29, when it relates to skeletal muscle, if you eat the way that you did when you were in your 20s, you are not going to optimize that tissue. And the reason is, you know, when you're younger, you can kind of get away with 10 grams of protein and you're highly anabolic, your muscle is stimulated, there's no issue. But as we age, that efficiency goes down. So if you are perimenopause or if any of your listener is 
obese, or have any kind of chronic health condition, or just doesn't have the body composition that they would like, which probably collectively, I mean, everyone has something that they can improve upon, then you have to really eat for optimizing muscle. And from my perspective, that first meal and that last meal are the most important. And in order to really trigger that tissue, and this is the most important thing that I'm going to say, other than how cute my kids are throughout this whole interview. And that is when you eat between 30 and 55 grams at one sitting, between 30 and 55 grams of dietary protein at one sitting, your body can overcome that anabolic resistance, that anabolic resistance. And your tissue essentially acts like a youthful tissue. And so just for like a picture, because I feel like people learn quickly, a, a chicken breast has how many, a piece of a filet, a filet has yeah. how, how many grams? So, how many? Four, so for one gram of dietary protein, there's, so for one ounce, so one ounce of a steak, there's seven to eight grams of protein. Let's just say seven. Let's make it easy. Seven across the board. For one ounce of dietary protein. So if you have a five ounce filet, that's 35 grams of protein. That's not very big. Right. That's it. Or you can have a whey protein shake. Um, you know, if you are plant-based, then, you know, I, I only add that in. I don't necessarily think that that's maybe optimal from a, a caloric or a carbohydrate load, but if they use a rice pea blend, that's an option. You just have to make sure that the leucine content is adequate. We're looking for two and a half grams of leucine which two and a half grams of leucine in a high quality protein will be in 30 grams of a high quality protein. So in your five ounces of a filet or five ounces of a chicken breast. So really, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because obviously whey is, high, is bioavailable. If you can find a good, yeah. you know, good source, you love that. The tricky part with some of maybe the pea proteins and the soy is, you know, kind of the hormonal. I agree. Right. So I think, um, and, and the incomplete amino profile. So like collagen, for example, will have, an, we have a food company. So I I've talked and it's, it actually all of our products. Um, I eat high quality animal protein, but those products happen to be vegan. And so it's been interesting dealing with, we have a protein. And so trying to find something with a, and make a pure amino acid profile has been very, um, it's very been challenging. Interesting. Yeah, it's been interesting. Yep. It is possible. Um, Sanchiichi, Sanchiichi, we like very much. Yep. Um, but just reminding people that these things might be good, but there's these sort of little, you know, kind of, I don't want to say consequences, but yep. if they're incomplete or what have you. So, um, and that's really why we eat for dietary protein. We, we eat for these essential amino acids and there's nine essential amino acids and it's, it's, not, and by the way, not all nine are equally essential, meaning we don't need them in equal amounts, which I think is really important. And, you know, as we age, the essential amino acid leucine, which is in high quality animal-based proteins, is really what differentiates muscle health. And from my perspective and from my mentor's perspective, this is key. And can you do this on a more plant-based diet? You can. Uh, again, I am not in favor of omitting whole food groups. I don't think that that is 
healthy. I don't think that that's how we were designed to eat. I have no issue if someone wants to do that. From my my professional perspective is we just have to think of things in its entirety. And I believe that if it exists in nature and, you know, it's non-processed food, I think there's a lot of value to that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of other things that go, you know, food is a matrix. We're not eating saturated fat by itself, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I did not have a scoop of saturated fat for breakfast. Right. right? We, we don't eat these things in isolation. We eat them as whole foods and there's a whole foods matrix. Like, you know, you mentioned whey protein, which has all the essential amino acids and, you know, in very robust amounts, specifically leucine, the brand, one of the branch chain amino acids, which is what we need. Do you think it's impactful to supplement with, uh, high, you know, high quality amino acids? I know it, it's different, but do you, if there's people who are like, listen, I just can't get it in, or they are choosing to eat vegetarian or vegan. Um, yes, I do. I okay, do. great. And also there's a couple ways. Number one, we do calories matter. And it, there's a couple strategies, take-home strategies that people can utilize. If you are on a lower calorie diet, you know, uh, one of the, the, the ways in which the guidelines got it wrong is they there's an acceptable macronutrient um, range, right? An acceptable macronutrient range. And they'll say protein can be anywhere from 10 to 35% of calories. Well, that's not very helpful because if you're on a 1400 calorie diet and you want 15% of your calories to come from protein, you're going to get 52 grams of protein. That's not enough, right? So I just had mentioned earlier that you know, from my perspective, one gram per pound ideal body weight is very important as it relates to muscle health. And there's a whole other, it's not just muscle health, but when you reach that threshold of muscle health, protein turnover in the body, uh, liver turnover, all, everything else falls into line. All the other essential amino acids fall into line. And when we think about how we create a nutrition plan that is viable, it really we have to, again, think about that food matrix. And that is really about optimizing for dietary protein and reducing calories if someone wanted to reduce calories. So branch chain amino acids, if, for example, someone is like, well, I don't want to have, or I'm going to be on a 1400 calorie diet, Mm -hmm. they need to prioritize. First of all, they have to prioritize protein first. They should reduce calories from fat and carbohydrates. However, if they are eating even a lower calorie diet, having 15 grams of protein plus a scoop of, say, the branch chain amino acids will then bring up that threshold, that amino acid threshold up. So that is very valuable. That is one way in which people can use branch chain amino acids. Or if they are eating more of a plant-based diet, adding in an essential amino acid mix or branch chains. But again, it's not just about the overall protein intake. We really have to think about, especially in an aging population, which is everybody, you have to hit that threshold from my, and, my professional opinion. And you also, you, you know, you're a big pro, uh, proponent of uh, phytonutrients. So you're not like yes. just going okay. like, oh, no, you know, no. protein, protein. No. So first best meal of the day, you, you, you emphasize first and last, yeah. but you know, you, I, I think you, this is sort of an interesting place for me because a lot of times I just will have coffee with fat and then train because I don't, I, I personally don't love to eat a lot of food. Now, when I listen to you, you will, you like to train maybe fasted yeah. and then your first best meal is like, okay, bison and 
Yeah. Something. Or I might not eat right after, right? I might not eat right after I train. I might not eat till two or three hours. Like this morning I did a CrossFit workout. I was not hungry. I was like, I'm good. I am not interested in, in eating anything for, you know, three hours after I train. And that's totally fine. But do you think because you have your nutrition dialed in a different way? Because there is, I, um, I'm sure you know, uh, Dr. Sims, Stacey Sims, where they talk about certainly high performance women, maybe, Mm -hmm. and especially as you get older, maybe fasting can be a little bit of a dance where they're not getting that recovery. So I'd be in, I'm just saying this in a nuanced way. Like this is now we've, we've gone off the rails a little bit, but I'm maybe just being selfish here, which is that it's also like getting in touch with yourself. So there'll be times after I train where I, I, my stomach's small. So, okay. she, She suggests like, how do you just keep that recovery window open a little longer by maybe having a small something, but the question um, but is, I the think recovery that, window is probably always there aside from, you know, I guess the hmm. next question would be, what are you training for? If you are someone like me, I'm not training for performance. I want to be lean. I want to be ripped. I want to be fit. Right. But I'm not trying to hit. So that, that's why I want to, I want to bring this yeah. up because a lot of people were really pissed off when she was like, you know, Hey, listen, unless you're, she was talking specifically about high performance female athletes and how fasting can sort of not maybe serve them well. So I really appreciate this, that subtle difference where it's like, Hey, if you're doing it right, you're going to be okay. And especially if you're not training for a marathon or you're in the WNBA. Totally. Okay. And then it becomes, what is your goal? Right. So could it be beneficial to, have a meal post-training when blood flow is optimized to skeletal muscle, right? Yeah. Well, definitely if you're older and postmenopausal, yeah. Yes. But then again, there's nuances. Do you have trained muscle? Are you super fit? Do you feel like you're recovering well? Um, mm-hmm. And then I would say I wouldn't be stressed out about getting that immediate meal in, right? People talk about, when I think about macronutrients, I think about protein for muscle health. And then I think about carbohydrates for glycogen repletion. Um, again, what is the end goal? If the end goal is performance, then I would say, yeah, you want to eat post-training for sure. Right. Those things matter, you know, and I can see where, um, Sims would say, uh, as it relates to maybe stress hormones in the body, you know, maybe fasting is not ideal. Okay. can totally agree. There's many reasons why individuals shouldn't fast. Can it be a stress response if you cannot manage your blood sugar? Yeah. Right. There's counter-regulatory hormones that happen. But again, what is, what is the goal for the individual? Yeah. And I I appreciate that because I think sometimes people, they hear something and then all of a sudden they just, and I'm like, why don't you just try to also experiment? I experiment with things for myself all the time. And by the way, certain times of the month, I feel differently than other times. So Mm -hmm. I think it's also being connected to your hormones how old are you? You know, again, are, are, is this an athlete who's competing? Is this a person who's really trying to, like you say, have vitality and manage their weight? It's, it's completely different. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and you know, live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babbel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have 
it's really quick. They've got 10-minute lessons, and but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know, like, talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you, you know, speak a new language. In fact, studies show, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer for a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now. You can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. Can we um, we just sort of educate the audience or remind them if they already know just about mTOR, just to, you know, yeah. how to how to stimulate kind of cell yeah. growth and because um, it just is, it feels yeah. foundational to all yeah. of what you're you know what you're talking yeah. about. So you know, it's interesting mTOR, which is mechanistic target of rapamycin, has really come under fire for whatever reason. Again, you know, twenty years ago. This wasn't, at least, you know, when I was starting and my mentor actually discovered his, one of his big contributions to science is that leucine is, uh, in a meal threshold stimulates mTOR. That was one of his contributions, which is pretty incredible. So mTOR is mechanistic target of rapamycin and it's in every cell in the body. And when people talk about, and I'll lay this out there because I think, you know, when I believe that the population can make good scientific decisions. I believe in the people, I really do. And when we hear about protein and cancer, people are talking about mTOR. I just wanna put that out there. And there's it doesn't no mean it's real. No, it doesn't mean that that's real. Right. mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin is a protein kinase and it's in every cell. And there's numerous ways to stimulate it and in skeletal muscle, it is stimulated by exercise. It's, you know, stretching, resistance training, and protein, dietary protein, leucine. You know, it can be stimulated by insulin and, and carbohydrates, but that's a good thing. Mm. mTOR is necessary for muscle protein synthesis. It's different. Its sensitivity is different in different tissues, different in the liver and the pancreas, you know, um, you know, I'm like, backwards here, but you understand it's, yeah. it's different in different tissues. The idea that, so mTOR is essential. And we, when I talk about eating for that leucine threshold, I'm really talking about eating enough protein, 
high quality protein to stimulate mTOR. And that's really important. And that is the reason why. And I think that we always have to ask ourselves, mm. what is the mechanism of action? Just like you said in the beginning of this conversation, if I understand the why, I can make an educated decision. So when we hear in the media, and I know that this isn't really what you were getting at, but this is what your listener is going to interface with. They are going to say, reduce your dietary protein because it's not good for you. And I'm going to argue and say, by what mechanism of action? Because mm -hmm. leucine stimulates mTOR specifically in skeletal muscle, which is a good thing. You know, when we think about cancer, we have to think about, first of all, cancer is a disease of the genome, right? It, 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 we have to, there's so many different kinds. And what are we even talking about? We have to really question, you know, what is it that is being said and why is it being said? So again, if we care about mTOR, then we have to care about excess calories, insulin, and obesity. That's, mm. that's what we have to care about because mTOR is stimulated again, pancreas and liver um, by insulin and typically by excess energy. I, I think that mTOR has really gotten a bad rap and, you know, it's, it's very tempting for us as a society to try to pin one thing, you know, uh, as the, the issue to everything. And the way I see it, when we talk about mTOR and protein, it's almost as if we're pinning it against high quality animal products, right? Because that's where they tie uh, mTOR and animal-based proteins. And that's a mistake. Protein is red meat and protein is not responsible for everything that goes wrong in the world, right? Is it, or everything that goes wrong with our health. But that's really kind of the argument. And um, there's a guy named David Klerfeld, and he has sat on the boards of the IARC committee, which are these cancer committees. And he's really talked about how the way in which they've pulled the science is extremely biased. And I think that that's worth reading. Well, you're, you're, you know, for me, I, I, I shared that I do eat high, high quality um, animal protein. I, um, I, I'm just curious, well, a couple of things is a lot of times because of the way we do get meat now, I mean, they've really done a doozy. I, I've heard you say bison a lot. I feel like they can mess with that the least or one of the meats that they mess with the least. So let's say someone's listening to this and they go, um, and now what's cool is that we can also order meat, which I think is yeah. really incredible. But if you're in the, in your sort of regular grocery store, you know, would we say that bison could almost be some of the safest as far as, you know, how it's treated and raised and what have you that's available? I think that that's a, I, I think that that's, I think what you're getting at is kind of the practices around conventional based meats. And I would say that these, number one, there's issues in all industry, no matter what, especially with the food industry. And I would rather eat conventionally raised beef than I would eat a bunch of carbs. I would have no issue if I couldn't get organic. Um, I mean, there, again, there's issues with everything and we just have to risk stratify. And I would say, it, you know, first of all, the majority of even conventionally raised cattle is grass fed, is raised on pasture and then grain finished. So again, there's a lot of, again, there's issues with uh, all kinds of practices, but me personally, if someone is going into the grocery store, I would rather have them choose a nutrient dense food matrix like red meat than something else. 
than a processed form of protein, hands down. How do you feel about eggs? Great. Eggs are incredibly nutrient dense, high amounts of choline. They're phenomenal. Great source of protein. And then there's a lot of people that sort of gravitate towards fish. You know, we all know like, okay, there can be, depending on the fish, you hear people getting themselves into sort of a mercury issue or what have you. But overall, does fish play, do you have a, you know, does it have a role in, in this kind of quest? Absolutely. Again, the goal is to understand that high quality protein is part of a healthy diet and that we shouldn't, you know, right now the current message is to continue to reduce it. That is a big mistake. Whether it's fish, chicken, eggs, whey protein, dairy, these are all high quality proteins and they all serve a unique, they all have a unique place in our diet. I really believe that. So it, it, fish is great. If you want to eat fish, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, fish, I mean, fish has its place. Yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah. I personally don't like fish just because I don't. <laughs> But if, if, um, but if somebody yes. is, is listening and I try, I try to really, I am not, you know, I, I, I'm not a person that needs to get people onto my side about anything. Like, you know what I mean? Like whatever you want to do, I'm, I'm, I'm good with. Um, but so just for real kind of organizational sake, if somebody's like, Hey, listen, I have a, a belief system or I just feel better. I want to be a vegetarian. I want to be, no, I want to be a vegan. What are the things that we want to encourage them to add into their buckets in a real clear way so that um, they can continue to thrive? Yeah, I, I think number one is picking higher quality uh, sources of protein. So if they are going to be on a vegan diet, I think understanding that protein is still is the most important macronutrient. And that a, a vegan type diet is typically much higher in carbohydrates, and that can have metabolic consequences. Understanding that, you know, whether they are using soy or supplementing with a shake, like a rice pea blend, I think that that's all very important because, again, we have to get these amino acids. If an individual wanted to use essential amino acids, this would be a good place to use it or... Um, uh, the branch chain amino acids. I would also say, I think that, you know, for my vegan patients, they are typically very deficient in iron, B vitamins. Um, you know, I think getting enough calcium can be an issue. Again, it's, it's not that you can't get these vitamins and minerals from plants, but can you get them in the same bioavailable amount? You cannot. Also creatine, which we know is really important for brain health doesn't exist in plants, uh, understanding creatine, choline, taurine, some of these components within a food matrix. So just making sure that they're supplementing well, I, I think is really, really important. Yeah, I, I really, I like that because I, I think even, you know, the, I, I uh, visited with Simon Hill and he's like the most reasonable person. He chooses a, a very, you know, practical way, but he did say, hey, listen, especially if you have like a teenager you really have to be on it while they're developing so they don't have these deficiencies. And it's not about hey, good or bad. It's just, this is the information. And so how do we get ourselves equipped so we can be as healthy as possible? Let's, let's talk about you. You are. A and I will say, I think Simon is very reasonable. And I, and I think that he does a really good job at promoting a plant-based diet that is high in protein. And he's typically who I refer individuals who are plant-based to go listen to. Yeah. And if I see, because again, it's not about, it's not about division, you know, it is about 
if people have these beliefs, how do we meet the needs that are ultimately going to move the individual? And I think that that's what's most valuable. And I, I, I also feel like most of us, if we're feeling pretty good and we, we, I feel like we all sort of live closer together in how to navigate our differences and how to, you know, even agree to disagree, how to move through the world. I just think it becomes all that becomes easier. I want everyone to be healthier because I just think it makes it easier to be here. Totally. And I'm just going to mention this. And I'm going to mention this. We all have different seasons. So is there room for a period where an individual would go on protein restriction for one week every three months? Or yeah, right. I think that there is, I don't believe that we have all the answers, but what I do believe is that we can make good decisions based on a scientific, a good scientific foundation that we know, we understand the mechanism. We've seen a body of literature that would support certain behaviors over a period of time. Then people can experiment and again, decide if they're going to do a sulfur amino acid restriction or a a meat-based diet for a period of time. I think there's seasons to everything. That's reasonable. So let's just talk about you for a second. Um, Is there a food that you don't eat ever? Like, and I don't mean you never well, have to eat the pizza. I mean, you look- yes, there is. There is. I do not eat sushi. I do not eat raw fish. I don't eat anything raw. I have out? done. Uh, again, the patient population that I deal with, with the frequent amount of travel, I have seen so many and so much weird stuff that I can only be isolated from sushi. I would never eat sushi. Does, does Shane eat sushi or? No. He, does, oh he listen, does he listen to you? Like, you know, sometimes we always joke in our house and expert, somebody who lives a mile away. Are you always like, oh, da, da, da. And he's like, yo, what do you know? You know, like I'm doing this. Uh, it's really funny. Um, so, my, so Shane is actually a medical student now. He was a medic in the SEAL teams. And can you imagine <laughs> living with a medical student? Exactly. Does he listen to me? No, he wants to see the evidence. He'll listen to me after I've delivered him three or four papers. I don't have time. I mean, no, but there you go. That's the foreplay talk. Oh yeah. Show me. Oh yeah, I will. Um, so you have, you have two children, a daughter and a, a baby son. How have you, because you, you are, you know, very, um, you're driven, you're, you're organized, you're goal oriented, you're getting it done. What about, what about you has not besides the obvious things, but what in part of your daily practice has changed? And I'm going to say it it, sort of in that, I, well, I can't control this element of my life, really. What in you has changed and also maybe surprised you? Um, I, like you said, I am extremely driven. I feel very motivated to contribute to the world. And I have never been good at downtime, right? So I am very much a hard driven person. That's my comfort zone. If you didn't give me something to do, I would have anxiety. I I would like, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. The thing that surprised me is when I'm with my children, I'm very much with my children. And I love every, well, do I like changing the diapers and when they're both screaming? No, but 
the interface of teaching and growing a human and being able to see how they can contribute to make the world a better place is, is amazing. Um, the other thing is, is I care less about uh, external influences, right? I, I have a finite amount of energy. I focus on my work. Um, I have things I want to contribute, focus on my children, and then I focus on the people that are really important to me. And then all the peripheral stuff is I, I can't, it, it doesn't matter. So I don't spend much time thinking about that. Yeah. I think once a woman's had a, a, a kid, she becomes different about time. Um, do you, how do you find that real estate to take care of yourself? I know obviously it won't be as long, but are, you know, I always said I, that was the one way I was sort of ruthless, even if it was 15 or 20 minutes, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, if I'm getting this window, you know, so do you find the way, have you found the way to sort of pr- protect that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I always train, uh, you know, I don't do the warm, hot bubble baths. It's not really in my, my scope of experience, but I get up, I train, doesn't really matter. Um, so I get it done Yeah. in terms of, of other things. I would forego a massage to do something with my kids yeah. and I, I understanding what really fulfills an individual, you know, movement for me is big, right? I'm not a very sedentary person. So I, I will make that. You mentioned earlier that okay. you're, you're more compact. Was were the pregnancies, were the pregnancies, were they easy? I mean, not easy, of course, but were they, they were tough. I had hyperemesis gravidum for the first one, which means I threw up for 10 months straight, oh. probably five, six times a day. I trained throughout all pregnancies and worked. So I would train. I did kettlebells throughout my whole training. I was really into that. I would do a set and I'd throw up. I'd do a set, I'd throw up. I was very sick. Yeah, it was not an easy pregnancy, the first one. And then the second one was a little bit better, but I was pretty sick the whole time. But not hyperemesis gravidum. I didn't throw up. The second so that's just, gen- that's just genetics, huh? It's like a luck of the draw a little bit. Terrible. It was terrible. Did you... But I, I did have two natural births, so I was induced, but I still did two natural births. That was intense and awesome. And the, um, and you forgot long enough to then go and have a second oh, baby. No. I, I, didn't, I don't know why people say they forget how bad it hurts. Uh, I did not forget. That hurts really bad. I The whole time thinking, oh, man, I got to do this again. No, it's true. It hurts. It's okay. I heard you talk about, and I thought this was a really beautiful point that I just wanted to drop into the conversation that when you, you know, you use, uh, carbs more as like the medicine part of your nutritional life. I thought that that was really, really interesting. You talk a lot about cilantro and maybe you could, uh, also share what uh, chlorogenic acid is. Yeah. So chlorogenic acid is something in green tea, green coffee. So I use this product called sun up green coffee. I have no financial connection with them. I just love them. I think it's an amazing product. And there is some literature to suggest that it does help with fat oxidation. And it also has a lot of antioxidant uh, capacity. And this is, I think the magic of food is that there are these medicinal components, however you want to define medicinal, but there are these substances in foods that I don't even believe we know. We have a whole uh, grasp on understanding. But, you know, cilantro and 
the you know herbs and of course the chlorogenic acid, which you know, I drink sun up in the morning. It's one of my drinks. I rotate depending on how much caffeine I need. So Gabrielle, I just, you know, when someone looks and listens to someone like you, um, and this is kind of, I get, well, one of the final questions is I always, um, you know, people think, oh, she, you know, it's easy for her. She's smart. She, she started early, all these things, you know, is it a constant tweak to just to calibrate, okay. The, the, the relationship with yourself with your partner, with your kids and with your work? Is it, you know, maybe you could just share that because I think sometimes people, people don't realize that, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a practice. It's a, it's a constant kind of surveying like, Hey, how's everything going? You know, I would say it's not easy for anybody. I would say what differentiates the people that make it look easy versus people that are always struggling. And I say this gently is discipline. It is disciplining your mind, disciplining your actions and discipline of execution. And it is not, you know, I asked my husband, my husband is, again, he was a Navy SEAL for a decade, right? Went to war, taught himself physics and calculus in Afghanistan while, you know, in between ops. And I, I talked to him and, you know, some of the other team guys, which they really are the, the 1%. And I'll say, you know, is there anything special about you? And they will all say no. They will all say no. They will say it is about their habits that make them what they are. And it's interesting, you know, obviously I'm nowhere near that. I'm not a SEAL, but it's interesting. I, I do believe that to be true. It is all about the personal discipline. If someone you you see patients, if someone comes to you and you don't have they don't have this type of discipline, because sometimes people have other types of discipline and not this. They can work themselves to the bone. They can care for their family, yeah. put everybody first. You know, they make homemade yeah. thank you cards. I mean, like they go, they can do it. Yeah. What? How do you how do you encourage them, or what's the invitation to sort of say, hey, let's start to develop this? How? What are the what are the steps? Well, so I, I don't think that steps are slow. I think when you identify the attribute of someone having external discipline versus internal discipline, I I think that um, the slower the process of understanding and implementing internal discipline takes away from what needs to happen. At the end of the day, everybody has it within them and really understanding an individual's weakness and probably asking the hard question, for example, do you feel worthy of having what it is that I am laying in front of you? Do you feel worthy? It oftentimes is a worthiness issue. And I feel like some somewhere along the line, it's like almost somebody said to them like, oh, you're built like that, or you're really good at this, but you're not good at that. It's an interesting yeah. thing how something lands on us and then we just kind of accept that and, um, and, and don't know how to get out of that definition. It's really, I mean, I have that in my own things, like even within my own physical practice, it's like, oh, I'm not flexible, you know? And so I have narrative, right. And everybody has, everybody has like four different narratives Oh yeah, and it could be, I'm not flexible. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. People have narratives. And then we create it. They're not incredibly interesting. And everybody has. Yeah. It's, it is, it is fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to get rid of old ones and at least keep the new ones like within check. So my final question just, and this is like selfishly, 
because I'm, you know, 52 and, and, you know, going through, you know, you time really is when your kids get bigger and you have grownups that literally are younger than some of your kids. You're like, whoa, how about for you with aging? Cause I get asked all the time and I sort of, it's not that I don't think about it. It's just like, it is what it is. Like I can't control that. And I'm just going to do the best that I can. And even in your own programs, it's like, hey, there's ways through living like this where you can at least slow down or even reverse elements of aging. Uh, for you, just as a human woman, you know, yeah. Do you yeah. do you have any secrets about your relationship with time and how you're moving through it? Hmm. You know, I this is going to sound a bit morbid but I have seen a, a lot more death than I'd, I'd like to, mm. you know, um, remember. And I think that time is always something on my mind and it just is. And the time that we have here is so finite. I mean, it's such a bummer, right? Like kind of joke, nobody gets out alive. It's kind of true. Right. Um, so I just, I think about it a lot. I think about what is this year and and just how it, it goes. And, and the only thing that I can lean back on is just being grateful for the moments, right? It it is just being grateful for the moments. You, and I know that that probably wasn't what you were asking. Maybe you were asking what is well, no, you know, no, but I mean also yeah. like if you worked in geriatrics, like is there a part of you inside it? Because I I do this, I'll be totally honest. Like there's part of me is like I see certain people that are a little bit older than me biologically, and I'm like okay, I, I, I'll do it this way. And then I see other people and I'm like, I'm definitely not doing it that way. Always, so a bucket, I guess that's more it too. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, okay, fine lines, yeah. the skin, blah, it's all gonna, it's gonna do what it's gonna do. But there's a part of me too, like wondering based on your experience, especially having seen it all, yeah. if you are bucking it, like, Hey, I'm also going to try my best you know, yes. to, to kind of construct it and define it for myself a certain way. I think this goes back to what you said about narratives. I think that we have a lot of self-imposed aging and we don't even know what it would look like to age in an optimal kind of warrior-esque way, which I believe is totally valuable and can completely be done. We just don't even know what that is. I mean, you're doing it, I'm doing it. And I am oftentimes very inspired by people. And maybe they're not people in um, the social media world, but you just see them out here. I'm in Southern California right now. I mean, got some savages, man. And that's, I guess you I want to end on that. So if you're, if you're in your, if you're younger in your twenties, thirties, forties, like, yo, this is time to, if you haven't done it, get that foundation going. And so yeah. that reminder that like, don't bite the hook that they're selling you. Like you can or can't do something because you're a certain age, but you got to do, you got to do the work. You have to be accountable. So Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, please just direct everybody. Um, wait, you're doing a book on top of it all. When, do you know when that's coming out? Yeah. So that manuscript <laughs> is due October 1st. Okay. So I want to talk to you in October. Do, do you have a working? Yeah. No, that's due October 1st. Uh, so it, it'll do uh, with a, uh, okay. Yep. It's with a, Simon and Schuster group. Amazing. And is it, um, are you yeah. allowed to tell us the title or you'll tell us? Yeah, I don't know what we are kind of going back and forth on the title. Okay. Um, but it, the concept is muscle centric medicine and really changing the way longevity is. It's very different than the current longevity discussions. 
One final question, actually, because it just came to me. When you get, when people buck you or you, you get, they criticize what you're saying because it's a very emotional thing. Where do you go within yourself to just manage that and to be willing to just stick to your message? Because I think it's harder and harder for people to be like, hey, the, I'm sharing what I'm seeing, feeling, or experiencing. You know, yeah. how do you do that? I think that um, the more emotional a response gets from someone, the less in control they are. And I do have a bit of compassion for that. And, you know, I'm not going to change everybody's mind and I don't need to, but what I do have a responsibility to do is share, share what I know. I mean, I am extremely fortunate to have been mentored by some very incredible individuals, whether people agree with that or disagree with it. Okay. So where do I go? I mean, I don't take it personal, you know, I mean, would they ever say that to my face? Maybe, maybe not, but you know, it's not personal. And, you know, we've created this world of social media where, you know, when I was in training, I didn't dare be disrespectful to people. There's other ways to communicate. Ways in which we're seeing now just really shows the character of people. Yeah. And that, that character, it's sad. Yeah. You know, there, there are ways to interface with people. That's right. And in per, and I think it's just that also we don't, we're not we're not connecting as much. We've got this other world. So just remind people all the places they can find you. Yes. So I have a new podcast out yeah. called the uh, Very Uniquely, the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. And uh, it's all about transparent conversations. It's really for the listener to be able to learn and ask questions. It is a labor of love and it's important work. It's uh, what I love to do. I am on Instagram, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, my website, uh, we do, I am taking patient applications. They'll apply on my website at YouTube, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I have a great newsletter and a free downloadable uh, protocol. Great. And we'll put the notes um, at the top of the show and it's L-Y-O-N, everyone. I really appreciate your time. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to put a couple things in play myself and experiment. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.